Welcome back to Leading Causes. I'm your host, Dr. Fernando Villacian, Senior Medical Director of Cardiology at New Century Health. With me today is Dr. Nihar Desai, Associate Professor of Medicine and Associate Chief of the Section of Cardiovascular Medicine at Yale University School of Medicine and Medical Director for Value Innovation at the Yale New Haven Health System. And Dr. Ileana Pina, Clinical Professor at Central Michigan University. It's great to have both of you back. In our first episode together, we talked about what's changed in cardiology care as a result of COVID. Today, we're going to discuss something that is stubbornly unchanged in our field, and that is low adoption of guideline-directed medical therapy, or GDMT. GDMT means taking the right medication in the optimal doses to treat cardiovascular problems. There's strong evidence that for many patients, GDMT is equivalent to or better than cardiovascular procedures that are more costly. Yet, these medications are chronically underused. Today, we're going to delve into this problem, the reason for it, and what might be done to improve the situation. Before we dive in, Dr. Desai, Dr. Pena, let's define what GDMT is and what evidence there is that's effective. So, um, you know, we coined this word GDMT in like the 2013 guidelines because it's guideline-directed medical therapy. In other words, whatever the guidelines recommend um, in, in the medical therapy, that's what the definition is. And the guidelines have always recommended RAS inhibition, renin angiotensin, aldosterone blockers, which includes the ACEs, the ARBs, more recently, the ARNI, uh, Secubitril Valsartan is the only ARNI we have, followed by beta blockers, uh, and then added to it the mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, which were sort of the, the last ones to get added. And so it would be a triple therapy, but it also means in the right doses. It doesn't mean two and a half of an allopril, and it doesn't mean 25 milligrams of metoprolol succinate. It's getting them into the right doses. And the guidelines give us what the typical doses that were successful were in the trials. And let's remember that the trials, for example, the beta blocker trials were done on top of the RAS inhibition and the mineral corticoid receptor antagonist studies, particularly things like emphasis, were done on top of the beta blocker, and the RAS inhibitor. And I think we do have evidence. We have evidence certainly from Get With the Guidelines that hospitals that adopt Get With the Guidelines and actually try to adhere to guideline-directed medical therapy, the patients do better. So I think we do have evidence that it works, and it works in populations, and it works in registries. What doesn't work is not doing anything. And I think that's been my frustration for many years that clinicians are just not doing the right thing, whether it's giving the inappropriate therapy, not giving enough of it, not thinking about it, not uptitrating it. And for years, I've been trying to figure out why. Why is that so difficult? And maybe because we've had devices that we think that you put a device in or you fix something and that the drugs don't work because all you're trying is to hold on to the patient. But if you did something acutely, put something in, it would work without realizing that it is in their hands, not only to stabilize the patient, make them feel better. I mean, these drugs actually make the patients feel better. They have more function, et cetera. And 
you may be able to reverse the left ventricular dysfunction. And we're talking here about the low ejection fraction or for what we now call HEFREF, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. We reverse in our clinic approximately a third of the patient. And I mean, really reverse them. Now I realize that maybe we're reversing them to that MREF number. You know, you go from 25 to 40, 45. You're really in that MREF, which I think is just mild HEFREF. But that you can actually do that. And some patients may not need the defibrillator if you get the rejection fractions over 35. So it's this lack of faith and lack of self-efficacy that they can do this. It does require work. Does require patience and it requires your patient working with you. I'm sorry, Fernando, it's a long answer, but this is really important. No, that's excellent. That's excellent. Uh, Nihar, some thoughts? Yeah, Fernando, I think, you know, just, just like Ileana said, and I share her, you know, enthusiasm, you know, for the importance of this. And, and, and this is a fundamental and, and foundational challenge, you know, for the field. Um, the therapies that we're talking about, in this case for heart failure, the, the RAS inhibitors, the beta blockers, the mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, and, and maybe even most, most recently, the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, the benefits of these drugs are overwhelming and unequivocal in the best run clinical trials that, you know, that, that clinical scientists have done. So the benefits of these medications are unquestionable. Now, at the same time, one of the conundrums we have to confront here is the fact that despite this overwhelming efficacy and effectiveness of these therapies, that too few patients actually get the medicines at the doses that they should be receiving them. In fact, there was a staggering statistic from a very recent registry of patients with heart failure that suggested that if you looked at the three medicines that Dr. Pina was just talking about, that less than 1% of all the patients with reduced ejection fraction heart failure actually got those three medicines at the doses that the guidelines would suggest. And so we have to take a very hard look at ourselves. I think the healthcare system, the way that we're engaging patients and communities, um, you know, how are we configuring care so that we can actually tackle this challenge. But it is a fundamental and foundational issue that we have to confront is how do we get more patients onto highly effective, evidence-based, high-value therapies like the ones that, that Ileana was just talking about? Definitely. And so, you know, when we talk about the evidence, we just don't need to talk about events. Uh, but we can also look at hospitalizations and, and, and costs. Can you expand a little bit on that, either one of you? Yeah, let me, let me tackle that one because we, we tackled that one when I was in New York. So, you know, readmissions uh, were realized that uh, they occurred in maybe one in five patients were coming back within 30 days for whatever reason. It didn't matter, but they had been in for heart failure and they got discharged often too soon, I think, and then they would come back. And, you know, and it made a big splash in the New England Journal, and this was the CDC and, and Medicare databases combined. Stephen Jenks published this in the New England Journal. And when we saw it in the New England Journal, most of us in the heart failure world said, duh, 
we've been watching this for years. We know that patients are going to start coming back and that in six months, half of them will be back, which is really distressing. But even more distressing is that the readmissions accumulate to a higher mortality. And yet, you know, I, I talk to the house staff and what's the first thing that everybody does when the patient comes in is they stop everything. So that's the first problem. Everything gets stopped. Oh, because, because the patient's decompensated. Well, they didn't decompensate because of the drugs. Don't stop the drugs. And that's actually the first line in the guidelines about the acute care is do not stop the guideline-directed medical therapy the patient is on. That's not why they came in. Um, and, and think about it in a precision way. Deal with the congestion, but don't stop the drugs. And then what we did in New York is we started a clinic, which I uh, very um, affectionately call brown bag, because we tell the patients to put all their medicines in a brown bag and bring them in. Um, and we find that these poor people have like three ACE inhibitors in their medicine cabinet, four diuretics, three different beta blockers. They don't know what to do with the stuff they have at home because you've sent them home and given them a list of the new drugs. Now what? What do I do with what I have here? So in that confusion, we started a, a pharmacist-led uh, clinic, which we call Brown Bag, which we actually had started in, in Cleveland at the Cleveland VA. And in our clinic, the readmission rate went down to 9%, while the hospital readmission rate was up at 23%. And when I first got to New York, it was 28%, which is just absolutely astonishing and ridiculous. So we got it down and we actually did the statistics. And the most powerful thing was just coming to clinic, coming to clinic. And the first model that we, that we derived was the right thing. And after that, it was our up titration of the drugs. So yes, it takes a little work. You have to think about this. You can't just let the patient sit at home for you know, 30 days and not see the patient. You've got to see them pretty quickly. And now Medicare has that as a, um, as a guideline. And Nihar, you may want to comment on what Medicare expects in this case. Yeah, Ileana, I think um, you know, there's, there's a lot to you know, kind of emphasize there. I think you made a number of very important points. So first is um, you know, the benefits of these therapies is, yes, on you know, heart events and heart failure, you know, being a very uh, important kind of comorbid condition, morbid condition, um, but also for hospitalizations. I think Ileana also mentioned on patient-reported outcomes, on symptoms, on quality of life, and also on cost and utilization. So these are absolutely high-value interventions, high-value therapies. And the fact that people are not getting them is really something that has to be, you know, addressed. I think, you know, readmissions have taken on a new area of focus because uh, Medicare instituted penalties, actually, to hospitals that had too many readmissions. Um, and so that, again, kind of heightened the focus on this a as an issue. Um, but again, the best way to keep people out of the hospital is to get them on highly effective therapies. And, and I think the other thing that we've learned is if someone's been in the hospital is to see them in the clinic very soon after leaving. And so to Ileana's point, you can sort out any issues with their medications, make sure that they're clear about their care plan um, and what they should do if something's not going in the right direction. Um, and so having a, a discharge visit within seven days, ideally, but within 10 to 14 for certain, 
um, has, has also been shown to be beneficial. And now CMS is kind of rewarding and incentivizing uh, those types of interactions and is also incentivizing uh, cardiac rehab for patients that have uh, reduced ejection fraction heart failure and have been hospitalized, recognizing that there is a multifaceted care component that is required for these patients from medications and exercise and diet, and lifestyle and social support, and that all of those things are integral components um, of, a, of a management plan that's going to help them you know, get, get back to life and get back to all the things that they want to do and not wind up back in the hospital. A lot of, lot of insight, a lot of good, good insight. And I, and I now want to talk about, I mean, we've, we've touched on the evidence and what are the best class in-class medical-based therapies that should be instituted and some of the reasons why it's not being instituted. And so can we talk a little bit about the provider and what are the reasons that the providers are not instituting these therapies? Well, I think there's there's several things. Um, if you ask any provider, they will tell you that they're doing everything right. So that's where data come in. If you can show them in their own data that they're not, because that's happened in some practices, that all you do is show them the data. And we did this in New York, too, that they come around and they say, oh, I thought I had been doing this. Well, maybe you weren't. That's the first one. The second one is that maybe some of them really don't know, but don't want to admit it. <laughs> um, you know, it's human nature as a physician. How can I not know how to do this? Of course. And the third one is that they don't have the other um, professionals, usually in their offices, to help them. How many clinicians in their office will have a pharmacist or may have a dietitian or a social care work, a social worker? that can help the patient with other issues of their socioeconomic status. They don't have that. So when we offer this service, it's a service. We are offering it as a service to the patient and to the clinicians, including the education. We doctors are terrible at education. I think nurses and pharmacists do a heck of a much better job than we do in education. And once you recognize that, you let them do their work and they will get the patients on the right drugs. And that's what we did. We, we turned the, the care to the pharmacists who do a superb job to talk to the patients about why are they taking their meds? What, what are the meds for? Uh, why it's important not to stop them, but to continue in them. Um, and let, you know, let's talk back about COVID very briefly. During the COVID pandemic, all the endpoints of heart failure hospitalizations came down. Why? I think patients were taking their drugs. They were scared. They were scared of COVID. They were scared of coming in. And maybe they were eating better because they were eating at home, you know, and not in a fast food place where you have a lot of sodium. So they were doing better. They were really taking care of themselves. And the rates came down. So tell me, to me, this was even a better proof that if you take the drugs, they actually work. And then there's this whole thing about side effects. Oh, it's hypotension. Well, what's hypotension? I like my blood pressures in the 90s and maybe the low hundreds. Oh, it's hyperkalemia. Is it real or is it perceived? So there are all these barriers that sometimes are in their heads, but are not real. Yeah. And Fernando, I might, I might just ask, you know, add a couple things to, you know, to the number of points that Ileana just made. So first is, I think there's also an issue of the wider ecosystem that 
I think conspires against us here. So, you know, we've had a healthcare system and a payment model that's really focused on volume and doing procedures, doing interventions. Um, and, and I think incentivizes those things financially in a way that is materially different than what it does for patients, for individuals that are doing the hard work that Ileana just talked about, spending time with a patient, talking to them about their medications, why it's so important, titrating up those medicines, following up with them, you know, with a telephone or a, phone, or, or a visit. Um, you know, th- those two work streams are compensated very, very differently. And I think we, sh- we should not forget that if we want to see better quality, better outcomes, we want value uh, in the clinical interaction, then I think the payment models have to also evolve away from volume-based, fragmented, siloed fee-for-service and increasingly to patient-centered, coordinated, comprehensive, longitudinal, value-based um, incentive and alternative payment models. So I think that's one important point. The other point, which I think Ileana made very, very well, and I will just reemphasize it here, is there was a recent clinical trial called Connect HF that actually randomized hospitals, um, and half of them got uh, provider education and feedback, and the others got usual care. And I think somewhat surprisingly, but very humbling, I think, for all of us, um, even with the educational intervention and quality mm-hmm. campaign, there was actually no difference in clinical outcomes and clinical events. And I think the lesson, I think, for all of us there is it's not just about giving more education to the clinicians. That, To Ileana's point, if you don't have the pharmacist and you don't have a disease management clinic and you don't have the other infrastructure that you need and you don't have the ability to engage with your patients around the importance of these therapies, then, then, I, then I don't think we're going to move the needle. And I think that we desperately need to do better for our patients that we are serving and that hoping for a simple solution to this um, is, is really misguided. So I think we've got to think creatively. I think we've got to do some work on the policy side around incentives and payment models. But I think we also have to give people better tools to engage patients. We have to educate and inform them. Um, and, and then we have to have some accountability and some monitoring of these things. But, but I think just educating our doctors is probably not going to be enough for all the reasons that Ileana just laid out for us. Absolutely. I feel that uh, we, we certainly believe that clinical oversight in the ambulatory care setting is very important. And uh, therefore, we have identified 27 cardiovascular services for eight conditions that should be reviewed against medical therapy guidelines before an authorization is issued at New Century Health. The initiative was started this month, and we are looking for positive results over the next 90 days. Uh, in addition to that, I believe uh, alternative payment models, as, as you well pointed out, uh, Nihar, are important uh, to further. Education is not enough. I must definitely agree with you on that. By the way, Fernando, that has actually been proven uh, in the literature, not necessarily about heart failure, that education, one mode of education for physicians doesn't work. You have yeah. to have more than one. 
And sometimes even, which we started a, a training program many years ago as a, almost an apprenticeship of having physicians come and spend a day with us so that they would see that what we say we do, we really do do. You know, when the creatinine bumps up a little bit, I don't get wild and stop the ACE inhibitor. I continue it, or maybe even up titrated. And so there has to be more than just that one modality. And I, I agree with Nihar. I think we have to get creative and think out of the box. It's time for this. Yeah, the study that, that you mentioned, uh, uh, Nihar, that is, it was limited to uh, post-discharge. So uh, discharge uh, planning, coordination of care, making sure that the drugs were uh, prescribed. And then there was some education to follow up, but certainly with no clinical oversight in the ambulatory care setting, just at the hospital level. But also remember that in that trial, Connect, um, we actually had the Duke um, uh, clinical research team contacting the patients. So there was that extra hand, but it was at a distance. It wasn't face-to-face with the patients. And I still think that patients like the face-to-face, whether you do it through telehealth, you know, with a screen in front of you or in person, I think they really do like that, that personal contact, that, that link to, to another human being. I think that's all we have time for today. Dr. Desai, Dr. Pina, thank you for joining me for today's discussion. To those listening, don't forget to visit us at newcenturyhealth.com for more on this topic and for other episodes in this series.